Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman. And I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. We have a very special guest today to open up the new year, 2020, our one-year anniversary, we have with us Laura Parker. Uh, For those of you who don't know, Laura lives with endometriosis. She is also a chronic illness advocate. You might recognize her from BuzzFeed, from Hulu. Uh, She had a show with Kelsey Dara called Can We Cure It? And she also lives with associated pelvic floor conditions to endometriosis. So Laura, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Yeah. And you've got a book coming out this year. So we're going to definitely talk about that as well. Um, But as many of our listeners know, we like to start these interviews by just finding out sort of the basics. And I'd love you to tell us how and when you first realized that something was going on with you. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot lately as I've been writing my book. And just like, as I talk more about my illnesses and like, I always used to associate it with when my period started, because my Mm. periods were just really, really painful, like from the get go. But I was actually thinking about it the other day. And I realized that I remember having chronic pain of sorts, Mm. when I was in sixth grade, Like that's when I started noticing like my abdominal bloat, my abdominal swelling and my abdominal pain. Um, But period, this was before my period. Mm. Um, So that's sort of been weird for me to think about. But I don't think I really realized that I had a chronic illness until maybe like three years ago. I think I was new, right? Like they're like, yeah, it doesn't have a cure. But in terms of like really taking that in and learning what it means for my life. um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say it's been only in the last couple of years that I've really like been like, okay, this is a thing. That's amazing. Well, especially because people who know you know you for being very open about what you've been through and trying to find alternative methods to, to cure your pain and to manage it. So it's really amazing because this really speaks to the idea of being a woman in the medical system and in the world, right? Um, that it often takes time to yeah. realize that like, actually this isn't normal. Um, and that totally. we're not talking about this stuff, which is exactly why you talk about it. So um, what did you eventually get diagnosed with? What's the whole picture that we're looking at here? So I've been diagnosed with about 10 to 12 different things at this point, but I was officially diagnosed with endometriosis around six years ago. And then after that, um, which you can only be technically diagnosed with of endometriosis through surgery for anyone who doesn't know. So it's, you know, it's sort of like really invasive and cost prohibitive, but um, my surgery actually made me feel 
like 10 times worse and ended up with like all of this unexplained pain. And at that point in my life, I was very sure that this surgery was going to cure me. Like I just thought like, okay, I'm going to go in and I'll come out and I'll feel better. And I won't ever think about this again. And like, Mm -hmm. I look back on that now and I'm like, God, that's sad. (laughs) Like I wish, you know, but, um, not a reality for chronic illness as anyone listening probably realizes. Um, and after that, I ended up having to go to Mayo Clinic, and I was diagnosed with uh, vaginismus, vulvodynia, overall pelvic floor dysfunction. Since then, we've added PMDD, interstitial cystitis, mm-hmm. um, vulvar vestibulis, like just so many What can you things. tell us what some of these things are for people who aren't Yeah, so familiar? it's just like sort of all variations of pelvic pain, vaginismus in particular. Um, it's really difficult to have any anything enter your vagina, basically. Yeah. Um, penetration for me as a straight woman is impossible for a number mm-hmm. of different reasons, uh, the most being that it's fucking painful, um, yeah. and I just don't do it. And then vulvodynia is more like the opening of the vagina and it's like a burning and fiery mm-hmm. sensation. It's like more of a nerve situation. Um, pelvic floor dysfunction is just like when your pelvic floor just isn't working, you can have incontinence. Um, you can always feel like the urge that you have to pee, yeah. which like people sort of brush that off as like a side effect, but it's like the most annoying thing if you deal with it. It's super annoying. It's horrible. It's horrible. And I hate when doctors are like, yeah, like you just have to feel like you have to pee. And I'm like, it keeps me up at night. Like it is miserable. It's like interstitial cystitis, but it's more commonly referred to now as painful bladder syndrome. Right. Um, It's something that is associated with pelvic floor conditions and also just with endometriosis, but it's not something that's really taken seriously in my opinion, or um, is like recognized often. They're just sort of like, yeah, you have endo. But it's actually like, cause it's like a cause and effect in my opinion um Mm. it's not like proven that having endometriosis means you'll also have pelvic floor dysfunction like not every single one that I have by any means but I mean they're often associated with one another when there's trauma yeah so how does this like I mean you've talked about this a lot and and you're really open and um have helped a lot of other people realize that they have more going on than they think they do. So how does it change your relationship to your body as a woman and a woman who is openly very, like you're a sexual person, you're a sexual being, Mm -hmm. right? Like how does having pain and discomfort in the place where you're supposed to feel good Mm -hmm. change your relationship to your body? Yeah. It's interesting that you say that I'm a sexual person because for so long I didn't feel like I was allowed to be. I think like I always like, you know, I've always wanted to have sex. I've always wanted to enjoy it. Um, But because of my conditions, I've never been able to have pain-free penetrative sex like in my entire life. Um, For a really long time, orgasms were really painful. So like to answer your question, I mean, it destroyed my Um, self-esteem. I just like, you know, I just felt, betrayed by my own body, especially like you said, the area that's supposed to bring you pleasure. So it's just sort of like, I mean, it felt terrible. I, I just avoided everything sort of altogether because I mean, yeah, it was was terrible. Yeah. I just like felt, I hated my body for what it did to me. Um, and you know, it still does it to me, but I'm trying to get to the place where I realize that my body and I are actually on the same side Mm -hmm. and we're fighting this trauma and this pain together. It just doesn't always feel that way. And there are a lot of 
new like coping techniques and, and devices out there, like things like the ONUT and different yes. like dilating devices that you've talked about a lot. Um, that, I mean, I presume are, are they helping using these tools? Yeah. So that's another thing that I've had to sort of like reframe is like, I used to think that like, if I, I didn't get to a place where I could have pain-free penetrative sex or even have it at all, let alone be it pain-free. It's just like, that was my end goal. And now it's sort of like, oh my God, the fact that I can orgasm, the fact that I can talk to you about orgasming without bursting into tears, wanting to leave the room and talk about how much of a failure I am or how unlovable I am. I mean, I've just sort of like changed my goal, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Which takes a lot of work because it's not just the physical stuff that you're dealing with and like prep work just to have sexual encounters, but it's also a mental battle, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's like going to the doctor if you have a chronic illness. I mean, you're anxious. You're like, I I can't do this. Like, this is going to be terrible. I only associated very, very painful experiences with any sort of sexual encounter. So Mm -hmm. for me going into it, of course, I was like, I had to like fully (laughs) talk to myself and like talk myself down and be like, it's not going to hurt. I mean, yeah. I still do that though. Like I still have that problem. Well, cause it's, it's so hard to separate that when you've spent your whole life sort of anticipating pain and managing pain in, you know, again, this area that's supposed to be a center of joy and pleasure. Right. And to be able to like separate the two is, I, I don't know how you, you, get to that point where you can actually make that separation because it's a part of your existence at this point, right? Like, no, absolutely. I think like my MO is always to just reframe things. I guess that's like what therapy is really. And that's like what I've learned the most is just like, it sucks, but like, how do I reframe it so that it sucks less? Yeah. Um, And I guess also like having partners that you can communicate with really well to actually. Yeah. yeah. I think that's key is to just be able to allow yourself to talk about it and give yourself the confidence and say, you know what, I'm not going to apologize for this because a, if it's a deal breaker, then sorry, you're really bad at sex and B, (laughs) like whatever it is, what it is. Everyone has something. And like, I'm not going to apologize for something that I did nothing to cause. And even if I did do something to cause this, like still whatever, I'm not apologizing. It's really interesting because you say that now, but it's like, even a few years ago when you started talking about this stuff, being able to say, I can't apologize for what my body is doing. Like it's not my fault. You couldn't say that without getting emotional when you first started talking about it publicly. No, absolutely. Um, It's sort of been interesting to, I guess, like open up about this and sort of cope with it publicly in some ways. Yeah. Um, Because I look back on some of the stuff that I've made and it's like, I really was just, you know, even like, in my last relationship, I was sort of open about that in some ways. And I look back on it now and I, I realize like how much I was projecting and how much I was sort of just not lying to myself, but just sort of like in this, you know, how you get with certain things. And it's just been interesting to sort of watch my journey with my illnesses in particular. And my relationship was sort of tied into that and just see like where I am now um, versus where I was. Does it, do you think it makes relationships I, I hate to word, use the word easier, but like, because your, your chronic conditions have taught you to communicate more, do you think that it's made you more forthcoming in relationships at the very least? 
I think so. I used to yeah. always say, and I guess sometimes I still do that, like my inability to have penetrative sex in in particular and like the fact that orgasming is painful sometimes, et cetera. Like I used to say that it was like a blessing in disguise and like, obviously I would never choose to have this. Let me just get that out of the way. Like if I could not have it, that would be great. But with my partners, like we can never rely on one thing. And Mm -hmm. so it's always about finding the new thing that works and the new thing that's going to bring us pleasure that day. And in some ways, like I am thankful for that because it has taught me how to communicate my needs um, and I'm not afraid to do so. And I think sometimes it's hard whether or not you have a chronic illness to say, hey, I I need to do this. Yeah. Yeah. And I think people really look to you now, um, particularly through your social media feed, because it's so unapologetic, you know, and and of course, like some of what we put on social media is a projection, right? Like it's editorial in that sense. But it sounds like you've really gone through a journey in a very short amount of time where you've been able to articulate more and more what's going on, what you need. And as Mm -hmm. you say, not apologize for it. Yes. So that's exciting. (laughs) Yes, it is. And it helps that I have a community of people Mm. living with things similar to me, Yeah, like sort of there to support me. Because I know like, when I go in and I have to talk to a doctor and they're treating me like shit and I feel like I need to say something to them. I do think about that. And I think about like, what would these people online say? Would they be like, you need to stand up to him? Like, what would I say to someone if it, if the roles were reversed? And it's sort of weird that it's, I feel like I have just this community of support. And that's so, I mean, I think that's what has given me the confidence to stand up and say, you know what? No, Mm. sometimes I I feel like I'm not just speaking for myself. You know, I feel like, you know, like I can't speak for everyone, obviously, but when I talk about these things, like I do it so that people who follow me who maybe don't have a chronic illness can see this and understand the next time they meet someone in their life who does have it and remember, you know, the certain things that it is that we have to deal with on a daily basis. Absolutely. Did you think that you would become that person or was it all just total happenstance? I never no, I never thought it just, it just came naturally because I had the platform when I, you know, I work at, um, I still work for buzzfeed.com at the time I was a writer. I'm not, not a writer now. I just don't have time to write as much for the site, but I was well, still a writer. You're just writing your book. No, yeah, <laughs> definitely. Thank yeah. you. But I, you know, I was writing about my life and it was mm-hmm. like, I had this thing, which was my chronic illness eating away at me and mentally. And I was like, just struggling. And I, I just wrote about it because that's what I do, I guess. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. and it just sort of became this thing where other people related. And then after that, it did sort of, it doesn't, you know, I don't feel like I have to do it. Like I enjoy doing it and I'm happy to do it. And I'm very mm-hmm. honored that I have, you know, the opportunity to do it. But I do feel like, a certain sense of responsibility sometimes because yeah. I do have a platform and you know, this is important. Like people are suffering way worse than I am. And yeah, I did definitely feel like I didn't expect it. Um, but I'm honored that I have the opportunity to hopefully help change the way people perceive chronic illness and chronic pain. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting too, because you are obviously, you know, writing at the time and in a workplace that, was sort of an exception to the rule, I guess, right? That, you know, mo- most people are living with chronic illness and going to work and can't necessarily bring it up with their boss or, totally. um, you know, express anything about it. So I suppose you had that sort of gift, right? In that you were being called to 
write about personal stuff. And you weren't the only one. You're not the only one at BuzzFeed who's asked to do things like that. And it's kind of kismet that you sort of ended up in that position, right? Yes, it does feel that way sometimes because, you know, I, and I didn't go to school. Not that like you have to go to school to like get your profession. Like a lot of people don't these days, but I was in school for communication and public relations. I really thought that I would like work in that field. Like I never saw myself as a writer. I never thought that that was something that was in my life. And it just became a thing because it was a way to express the feelings that I had around having this chronic illness and being diagnosed with it and all of this pain that I was experiencing and that I couldn't say out loud. A lot mm. of the reason was because I was embarrassed because of course it's vaginal pain. It's, it's painful sex. It's like all of these things that I don't want to talk about and I don't mm. know how to talk about it. Um, so I wrote about it. Yeah. And that's probably good advice to people listening, right? Like if you can't talk about it, write about it. (laughs) You don't, you know, you don't need to share it. Like I totally get that. Like I'm, I overshare. It's like (laughs) a lot, but I'm fine with it. But I do think that like it is helpful if you're trying to sort through something like even what I found helpful is like writing a letter to Mm -hmm. myself when I first started experiencing these symptoms and like letting her know that adult Lara is on her side now and that her pain is real. And it's like, it sounds crazy and it maybe sounds like I go to therapy too much, but it really has been like helpful for me to sort of go back in time and relive that mm-hmm. knowing that I have myself on my side. If that yeah. I think that makes total sense, especially to fellow Spoonies who are listening in. So yeah. you talked about your community a moment ago And I want to sort of circle back to that because I'm wondering if at any point in this healthcare journey, all the different doctors and specialists that you've seen, whether you found that you needed a personal advocate outside yourself um, to bring to these appointments, to talk through things um, before and after the appointments, and or whether that was you, whether you've become that person too. Has there been anyone who's been with you along the way? You know, my parents are very supportive, but I've lived in a different state than them uh, for six years now. And I didn't really, it's not that I couldn't have had someone. I don't want to like make it sound like no one in my life supported me. Um, I don't know that I knew what kind of support I needed and I didn't know how to ask for it. So I definitely was that person for myself, but I will say that I have decided to pursue a surgery. And for that appointment with the surgeon, I had a friend go with me because it had been a long time and it was a very emotional thing. And I wanted to make sure that I was making the right decision. So you brought this friend with you to like the pre-op appointment and to the surgery. Have you had the surgery yet? I haven't had the surgery yet. It's in January. I'm actually very anxious about it. Um, Yeah, I bet as any, you know, as anyone would be, but yes, I brought a friend and it was so helpful Mm. because when I walked out of there, I was absolutely overwhelmed and she was there to be like, this is what's happening. And also to say, Hey, I really liked that doctor. I think it's a good one. You know, like that's important because I don't even trust myself sometimes with doctors. um, Cause I always think that they're against me. Well, cause it sounds like you've, you've experienced a lot in the medical system. So I guess you've come across doctors who like didn't believe you for a really long time. For sure. I mean, that's like uh, 90% of my experience. So like, Mm -hmm. of course I don't think that they're on my side because quite frankly, they haven't been, 
Um, But it's hard because then when I find one, like I think my surgeon now is a really good egg, but Mm. I don't know that I would have felt that if I hadn't had my friends sort of reassuring me. So you would have been more cynical. I I still am. Like when I Mm. go in between appointments with her uh, leading up to the surgery, I'll find myself questioning, like, was she good? Like, Mm. does she believe me? Is she in this for the long haul? What if this doesn't work? Is she going to just discard me like the rest? But it's interesting because it seems like maybe that narrative has shifted from you questioning yourself to questioning other people, which is probably more productive in some way. (laughs) I've started to, I used to have so much anger for my body, which I touched Mm. on a little bit earlier, hated my body, felt betrayed by it. Now I have anger toward the medical professionals that I saw that treated me the way that they treated me, that disregarded my pain, that gave me inadequate treatment. Mm -hmm. That's where I channel my anger now. And quite frankly, I think that they deserve it because I Mm -hmm. don't believe that I would be in this amount of pain or this sick had I been given adequate care the 27 times I tried to get it. Wow. Now, what would you say to people who are listening who are going, yeah, but if you shift your mindset and move that energy and yeah, fuck those people. (laughs) Yeah. I would literally say fuck off. It's (laughs) like, I am a hundred percent on board with the Mm. concept of mental pain being, I am, I am a hundred percent aware that a lot of my pain is rooted in trauma. And I know that I need to work through that, but guess what? I am working through it. And when you have the addition of physical pain, it's just like, it's not realistic to tell someone with chronic pain, oh, just think your way out of it because (laughs) it's fucking chronic. If I only had one day of this and stubbed my toe like you, Joe, I'd be fine. It's always Joe. (laughs) So it's like, I just, anyone who says that just doesn't understand and like, congrats, that must be nice. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm just wondering, like prior to arriving at a place like BuzzFeed, for example, um, as you were navigating your career and your education, Mm -hmm. how are you managing life with chronic pain day to day, particularly as this was probably well before you had your diagnosis and had started experimenting with treatments? So I actually, um, I got, I had I got diagnosed with endometriosis right before my senior year of college. Mm. And then I went to study abroad. And when I came back, I had had that surgery. And when I came back, my pain was like a hundred times worse. So Mm. I actually like barely graduated because my second semester of my senior year, I was like failing all of my classes because I was never going to work. And I had an internship at the time. And I actually, um, the boss like sat down with me and talked to me and was like, I can't recommend you to any jobs after this. I can't write you a letter of recommendation because you've been absent too many times. And I was going into like, I graduate, I ended up graduating because my professors quite frankly felt sorry for me and gave Mm -hmm. me a B. So Um, they knew that you were going through something. They knew I was going through something, but I didn't talk about it to anyone. And quite honestly, no one would have known what endometriosis was. Like, I mean, people still don't really take it seriously to this day, but like then they would have been like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. So I definitely didn't talk about it. And I also didn't have the concept for what it was. I thought, oh, I was diagnosed with this thing. I had surgery. I'm okay now. Um, (laughs) So like I, after I graduated, I, I just sunk into a very deep depression. Um, I didn't know what to do with my life. I didn't know what I could do with my life because of pain. And then I sort of like, I 
went to, I got diagnosed with all this pelvic floor stuff because I ended up going to Mayo Clinic because I was so desperate. And that was in the summer after I graduated. Mm. And then I was able to go to pelvic floor physical therapy with a really good therapist in Indiana where I was living at the time. By the time that I got to BuzzFeed, I was not having pain like I'm having today. Mm. It was much less severe. It was definitely there, but it was not on the level that it is today. Um, endometriosis is a progressive disease. So I believe that it's only gotten worse on top of like not having adequate care for like physical therapy and different things. Like, you know, when you live with chronic pain, your body starts to adjust to having that pain and it Mm. sort of like overcompensates and causes you more pain because you're like not walking correctly or like whatever it may be. So when I started working at Buzzfeed, I started as an intern and I was, I wasn't fine, but I I wasn't taking the amount of sick days that I have to take now. Mm. So I don't think that Buzzfeed necessarily created a workspace for me. I think I created that workspace because I chose to be really honest about my experience. And I had really Mm. understanding bosses at a company that has unlimited sick days for everyone. And I think, you know, when companies make that, they don't make it with the intent of someone having a chronic illness. But for me, it ended up obviously being extremely beneficial. And now Mm. I am just very open and honest about my pain. I have told all of my coworkers and my bosses about my upcoming surgery and about all of the things that I have to do to prepare my body. Mm. And they've been very understanding and I appreciate that. And I think, you know, it's because... I just like present it very matter of factly and I don't ask for permission, which again, I understand how privileged this is. And I don't want to sound like I think everyone can go to their boss and be like, I need this time off. I completely understand that that's just not how the world works for me in particular. I'm very fortunate that is, it is how it worked and that I was able to go to them and say, this is my situation and this is what I need Mm. in order to get better and be an employee that can, work 40 hours a week because quite frankly, I can't right now. So, well, it's interesting because it really shows you the argument in favor of unlimited time off for employers, first of all, but second, you know, as, as you do wisely mention, uh, you know, this, of course, you're speaking from a position of privilege to be able to like go to your bosses and tell them what you need. But there are people who are listening who probably have that privilege and haven't exercised it yet. It's hard. Yeah. It's so hard. But here's the thing, like, I always tell myself, if my boss had this pain, what would they do? The answer is that they probably wouldn't even fucking be at work as often as I am. Yeah. And that's no shade against them. It's just that when you have chronic pain, you have this certain level of like, you can just deal with things that other people just wouldn't be able to deal with. And I think we put ourselves through so much because we're so worried that someone's going to notice and be like, they're not Mm -hmm. working hard enough because they have a chronic illness. That's just not true. I think we work harder than other people because we know that we have to. Well, and you have a full-time job managing your pain aside from actually 100% working to get paid. So it's, you're really doing twice the amount of work of anyone else when it comes down to it, right? Yes. So do you think that there is any way to find balance when you live with chronic pain then? Or is it, is that something that's just out of reach the way our system's built? It's a big question. (laughs) Yeah, I think it is possible, but I, I have not figured it out yet. And I think that it's only possible if we have empathetic workplaces, which is rare. I mean, so many people like 
so many of my friends, my closest friends are teachers. And I just, it breaks my heart to hear how hard it is to take a fucking sick day as a teacher. Yeah. It's terrible. So it's like, we just need to stop having the mindset as a whole that you need to work, 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 or you're not worth anything because that's just a not true and be just dangerous for everyone, not just people with chronic illnesses, but especially people with chronic illnesses. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talk about burnout and the concept of burnout a lot. It's, you know, kind of a buzzword, but the idea of it, it it actually comes from being overworked and being overstressed. So it starts with the way we're sort of designing our lifestyle, doesn't it? And like whether or not that structure works for people. Totally. Yeah. There's no like one size fits all for anything. And that includes work, you know? So it's Mm -hmm. just like, I think employers need to be more understanding. As long as you're getting the job done, why does it matter? Yeah, absolutely. This episode is sponsored by Ember Labs, creators of the Ember Wave, the intelligent bracelet that helps control how you experience temperature. I'm heat sensitive, and this device has been a lifesaver. Using patented technology, it cools or warms the temperature sensitive skin on your wrist creating a natural response in your body and mind that helps you thermally adjust in minutes. It was selected by Time Magazine as one of 2018's best inventions. For those of you with mounting medical costs to consider, the team at Ember offer a payment plan in partnership with a firm. And because you listen to Uninvisible Pod, they are offering you $30 off. Go to emberlabs.com, that's E-M-B-R labs.com, enter code INVISIBLE30, that's INVISIBLE30 at checkout, and experience personal thermal wellness on a whole new level with me. So you mentioned the many, many doctors who didn't believe you. And I'm wondering if you have any specific experiences that you can recall that aren't too painful to discuss, um, or, you know, maybe use it as an excuse to get that anger out, um, that you can tell us about doctors, or not even doctors, but anyone, even employers, friends, family, that you were forced to justify your your pain and your illness to, like people who just didn't believe you because they couldn't see it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, there's a lot. I've had mm-hmm. doctors, you know, I've ended up in the ER in an ambulance from passing out from how mm-hmm. extreme my pain was and had the doctor tell me to take ibuprofen. Like mm-hmm. literally didn't run a single test, didn't, talked to me about my symptoms, told me it was my period and to take ibuprofen, even though I had told him 10 times I wasn't on my period. And also if I was on my period and I was passing out, that still wouldn't help me. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, actually just this week, I had an experience with one of the specialists that I'm seeing now. And, you know, he, it's, it's hard because you think those people would never make you feel this way. But really, it's like any doctor ever. Um, and I think doctors like really don't know how to handle chronic illness. Mm. And that's I think that's very well observed. It's and I think they just get sort of frustrated with themselves and frustrated that they can't do what they want to do as mm. this professional and as this expert in their field. Um, but you know, I had an experience this week with a a specialist that I've been seeing for a few months and he's a pain specialist. He's very like well-respected, knows a lot about endometriosis and I'm not responding the way that he had hoped to some of my pain management prior to my surgery. We're trying Mm -hmm. to get like my pain levels down so that I recover easily. Um, and I felt like he blamed me for it. And 
it was really, really, really difficult um, because I felt like at this point in my journey, when I'm paying for all of these specialists who know so much about my disease, that they of all people would understand what it's mm-hmm. like and that I've done nothing wrong and that I'm doing everything I can and that this isn't my fault. Mm. But I think unfortunately, like I just said, like their pride sort of gets in the way sometimes. And he looks at me like a problem to fix, which maybe yeah. that's the way his brain works. And when he can't fix it, he gets frustrated and sort of turns it around on me and is like, well, you need to do this or you need to do this or you're not doing this. And it's like, that's not fair. That's not mm. fair. And I'm tired of it being turned around on me. Instead, I would much rather a doctor approach me and say, you know what? I don't know why this isn't working, but let's yeah. try something else or let's see if we can refer you out to someone else. Um, That's the removal of ego there, isn't it? Yeah. It's impossible for yeah. so many doctors. And I think um, also to understand that people with chronic pain, when they've been through what you've been through, your ego doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know, like you've been battered by your own body from the inside and mm-hmm. you know there's no way to have an ego about please just make me stop hurting no I would beg like on yeah. my knees for someone to help me and to take me seriously and I don't think that doctors understand how important bedside manner is yeah um and that's what he was lacking so it goes from like an experience of where I'm ending up in the ER room after passing out and being offered ibuprofen, which is mm. fucking insulting. Yeah. To, you know, almost 10 years later, here I am. And while the doctor is supposedly taking my pain seriously, we'll still sit there and be like, I don't know. It seems mm. like you're doing something wrong. And it's like, right. Not the right kind of I don't know. No, it's terrible. Yeah. And I just wish that they would understand how detrimental that is for yeah. us. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's interesting too, because I think there are also different kinds of personalities and different kind of kinds of minds. Right. And like, we like to think that, that people who go into medicine have logical minds because they're trying to connect the dots. But sometimes that also means that there's a lack of empathy or bedside manner. And it's funny because the more I talk to people, the more I think like, okay, so how do we like offer solutions? Mm -hmm. Right. And the more I think it's an extra year of medical school and it's all about bedside manner. And mm-hmm. learning how to be a nice person because not everyone learns that, do they? You, no, no. And you mm. would think that it just comes naturally, but it mm. absolutely yeah. does not. Yeah. Because a lot of people it. can't read the room. That's just, some people are like that, right? It's so weird. Sometimes I wonder, I'm like, do I understand this stuff because I have a chronic illness mm. or would I be more understanding in general? I feel like I'm a pretty understanding person. I feel like most people are, you are, if someone was telling you that they were in pain, wouldn't you be like, oh, oh my yeah, God, I how you. can I help? Yeah, yeah. yeah of course. <laughs> I just don't understand like where the, the impulse comes to be like, you're lying. Do you think like, this is a male female thing? I don't. I've been mm. treated terribly by both. Yeah, I would rather see a female doctor. I'm not going to lie to you because, you know, a lot of my problems are associated with the female anatomy. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, it makes more sense to me yep. to see that. But I will say that I've been treated horribly by both. So mm, it's really amazing to me. But it, it, despite that, have there been a, some people in there who've really treated you well? Only in the last, you know what? this is what I talk about with the intersection of holistic and Western medicine. Interesting. The most affirming, kind, caring, compassionate people that I have seen who have actually tried so hard to help me and have believed me from day one have always been holistic doctors. It's fascinating. People who aren't considered 
real doctors or aren't covered by insurance. I think like, again, privileged to be able to see those people. But I think that that is what was such a turning point in my journey for me in many ways, because never once did they ever question me. In fact, they would spend hours trying to make me feel better. They would research things, they would read studies. And I go into and see my fucking pain specialist and he asks me what I do for a living for the 10th time in a row, you know? The difference is astounding and that sucks. And I, you know, I think I'm at the place now where personally I'm in the intersection of both. Mm. I need Western. I also need holistic. I think that whatever works for people is what they should do. But I think that anyone who is fully Western science-based evidence-based is sort of just missing the fact that evidence-based and science-based is very discriminatory and Mm doesn't care about women's health, quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and this is the thing that it comes down to, isn't it? That like, when you don't believe women, when they tell you that they're in pain, then you're endangering their health full stop. A hundred percent. Yeah. Well, people, people have died, like mm-hmm. a lot of people. It's well, very yeah. dangerous. It's very fucking dangerous. And I think to myself, if this were a hundred years ago and you were going to a doctor with the same symptoms, they would have said she's an hysteric. Mm-hmm. And, you know, oh, yeah. either put you in an, a sanitarium or, you know, tried whatever therapy, shock therapy, whatever, mm-hmm. you know, not, none of which would have actually targeted the issue that you're having. You know, it's interesting. I don't talk about this very much, but I had a great grandmother that was in a mental institution and mm-hmm. she ended up committing suicide. And wow. I often, she was experimented on a bit. She was called hysteric, you know, like. Um, she had shock treatments. I wow. think about her a lot because I, a, a big part of me wonders if maybe she had similar symptoms to me. Wow. Because, you know, it yeah. is, it is, it runs in the family it, it's genetics. So I, I, you wow. know, I think about that a lot and like, I don't know, I didn't know her. Hmm. I can't speak to it, but I've always wondered about that. Gosh, I'd be curious about that too. I think that's a really interesting observation. And I wonder also, cause you were talking about these holistic practitioners and this is just something that I've been super curious about and maybe I've missed the update somewhere, but when you did, can we cure it a few mm-hmm. years ago with Kelsey? Um, you guys went to a clinic in Florida that did laser treatment, right? Mm-hmm. And they gave you to take home with you basically like a laser dildo for lack of a better term, yeah. right? Yeah, that yeah. You were actually able to use to penetrate yourself and like you were actually able to keep it there for longer than you'd ever experienced. Yes. I'm wondering if that's something that you're still using in your treatment protocol or if there's like opioids that you're using now, or if you've been offered those, like sort of what it looks like for you as you manage everything. I'm not on any opioids. I use medical marijuana. uh, Yes. This is your big thing. Yeah. Yes. I use it for pain management. I'm a big believer. Um, I'm like that annoying dude that's always like CBD. (laughs) <laughs> but um, I understand also that it doesn't work for everyone. I just believe mm-hmm. that everyone should have the opportunity to try it. Um, and, but I do still use laser therapy. I do. Mm-hmm. What I think was missing with laser therapy, I mean, look, I believe that it's helpful. But I yeah. think what it was presented as in that and what I sort of like tried out was like laser therapy by itself. Mm-hmm. Now I take like a much more integrative I'm like in pelvic floor physical therapy. I'm seeing a pain specialist, chiropractor, acupuncture, laser therapy, like all of these things that I can do. My diet, 
Yep. Be getting surgery. Like again, it's It's really a combo of everything. Yeah. And that's like what I'm learning about chronic illness. And that is what makes it so fucking hard to have one on top of it. Just being terrible is that the treatment for it, I really believe is like a a big approach of like a lot of different things. And that's Mm -hmm. unfortunately not how most Western doctors approach it. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. And you've hit the nail on the head because I think most people who are really successfully managing their issues are doing it with a number of different approaches. It's never just like, I take this pill and it's fixed. No, God, no. And it's like, when you have chronic pain, even if it's just in your fucking arm, it's going to affect your whole body because you're going to walk differently. You're going to sit differently. You're going to adjust around that arm. And any doctor that comes in and just looks at your arm is just being negligent because Mm. your whole body is affected. And I think that is what I've learned and I believe it wholeheartedly. And I don't know many doctors that share that sentiment. And that really bums me out because to me, it makes perfect sense. Like, of course, your whole body would be affected. Yeah. Of course, we need to look at it as a whole body approach. Like, why wouldn't you? But Mm. they don't. Yeah, absolutely. Were you ever offered opioids and like you just decided to like focus on the medical marijuana? approach? Um, so medical marijuana just like happened accidentally when I moved to California, Mm. I was offered opioids early on that and a hysterectomy were Mm. the things, which by the way, is not a cure for endometriosis. Um, Yep. Say it louder for the people in the back. (laughs) I know. I'm like, Uh, I was like also 21 years old at the time. Uh, Well, it's lucky that you did your research. I didn't even, that's the thing. I had no clue. I would have fully believed that. So you could have had a hysterectomy at, a hysterectomy at 21. And then... I for sure would wow. have, and then it would have done nothing for me Yeah, and I would have been worse off. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's what they offered me. The opioid thing, I don't know why I didn't take it. I think mm-hmm. I just, I don't know. Like I had been on a couple of different, like antidepressants that they had prescribed me for my nerve pain. And I had had really bad reactions to them. Mm. And I was just like very scared of taking another prescription pill. I suppose this is also like at the height of the crisis too, right? That like all you hear is like people who take them become junkies. Totally. And like, I just didn't, I just didn't know. I I didn't Mm. know anything about endometriosis. Like I've learned so much. And you've learned it because you started talking about it, right? It's like, which is sad. I'm like, I didn't learn this really because I went to go see a doctor. Like (laughs) 90% of what I know about it is because a other people in the community have taught me or B like I've read it myself in like another article or C like, I don't know. You just learn as you go when you start Mm -hmm. talking about it. But yeah, opioids, like I, I never, I'm very lucky because I do believe that if I still lived in Indiana, a state where weed was not legal and I was mm. in the amount of pain that I am in now, like I probably would take them. And I understand why someone with chronic pain would. And it's unfortunate that that, A, it's like really stigmatized and I yeah. understand like I get that, but I also- A lot of people need them. Yeah. A lot of people fucking need them. And I would never shame someone for that. And, you know, I'm lucky that I'm able to live in a state where I can use- marijuana not everyone can do that um so yeah Yeah. I never ended up taking them but for the record like I support anyone who needs them yeah I think that's extremely open-minded of you too um and you know we've talked about a lot of ways in which the health system hasn't worked Mm -hmm. right what about ways in which it does work oh god that's hard are there any (laughs) 
are there I any mean, redeeming qualities? I think that there are good eggs out there. I think yeah. that the surgeon I am seeing right now is great. I love my physical therapist, but here's the thing. I have to pay out of pocket to see both of them yeah. because they are so, I mean, they're just inaccessible. So I think like, it's hard for me to be like, yes, this is great about the health system when 90% of people can't see them because yeah. it costs $900, you know? Yeah. Like, so it's like, when I think of them, I'm like, yeah, that's great. Love that. And then I remember, oh yeah, by the way, pretty much no one can see them because they're yeah. inaccessible. So I think there will be good things uh, mm. if they listen to patients and, you know, so many of us have chosen to speak out and yeah. are so brave sharing their stories that will make a difference. I really believe that. Um, so mm -hmm. I think I'll say that I don't think it's really good now, but it will be. Yeah. Hopefully. I think that's very hopeful. So that hope. there's a positive spin on all this. Yeah. What about media? Yeah. <laughs> right. What about media representation too? Like, do you think that there are limitations on the chronic illness community because of the way that they're represented in the media or yes. that that representation itself is limited. Listen, if I ever have to watch another fucking commercial for a medicine for some chronic illness that depicts this person as the most boring person and a <laughs> buzzkill to be around until they take their magic pill that makes them go hang out with their family again, I'm going to lose my fucking mind. That sort of <laughs> shit. It's so damaging. And I yeah. think about that every time I see it. Listen. That's the fault of pharma though, isn't it? Like, Oh that's, yeah, for yeah. sure. Like fuck big pharma for that. Mm. And for many other things. Um, yeah. But like, yeah, I do think, you know, we're sort of just often portrayed as like, if we're not lying about something, then mm. we're just like a buzzkill. And I think that's bullshit. And I would like, to see that change and I will do everything in my fucking power to change it for my specific conditions, but also hopefully chronic illness in general. Mm. Um, I what does that look like? Like restriction on advertising budget? Like, you know, is that something that has to come from like the federal level to pharmaceutical companies and we have to sort of pull money and things? I think that we take power away from big pharma. Yeah. And not mm. let them have so much power and, and you sort of monitor their advertisements. But I think like on a bigger level, also just like more people are speaking out about chronic illness, which means that it's easier for media outlets and media companies and places like Netflix and TV producers and whatever the hell they do to find someone to accurately represent something. If you're going to talk about it, I mean, that's just mm -hmm. like what you should do for everything. You shouldn't write about an identity without consulting someone in that identity, in my opinion, because I think, you know, then it's, it's just messy, especially if it's like this sort of thing. Like if some dude is going to write about a girl who has endometriosis, like, and he has never had endometriosis and can't have endometriosis. And <laughs> like, you know, like that's not, I'm not, I don't know. I'm sort of rambling, but I, I don't know. Really oh, not at all. That makes total sense. It's, you're really saying that like to fully understand it, in order to properly represent it, that you need to speak to the people who are the experts, who are the patients. Or just like listen to them, you know? Yeah. Like, and we're here, we're talking. There's a lot yeah. of us and yeah. there's power in numbers. And yeah, just like listen to us. It's not that yeah. hard, you no. know? You would think it would be so much easier, but a lot of the time it's like, where's the money, right? Like, is there money in me listening no, totally. to you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know... I was talking about endometriosis for a long time. And now that it's a sort of a buzzword, then all of a sudden mm -hmm. different opportunities come and it's like, 
you care about this now because it's a thing and I'm glad that it's a thing. Yeah. Great. I will be on board for this, but also like where the fuck were you four years ago? People were still suffering, you know? Yep. Absolutely. So, okay. We know that you are an advocate. Tell us about the book that you're working on right now. Um, cause I bet everyone listening is really excited cause I'm oh super excited. Oh Thank you. <laughs> yeah. It's actually done. Well, I have to mm. still do copy edits, which like, right. okay, I understand that that's like important, but <laughs> the content is done, which is really yeah. exciting. And it will be out on October 6th, 2020. And it's what is it called? Exciting. Oh yeah. Sorry. It's called vagina problems. Um, and it'll be essays about like my endometriosis, um, painful sex, but it's also just like, you know, I have a lot of stuff just generally about living with a chronic illness in there. So I do feel like, you know, I'm going to uh, plug myself a little bit here. I do hope that anyone with any sort of chronic condition or dealing with chronic pain, um, can find something in there for them. Yeah. I hope that's my goal. Um, I would think so. I mean, even yeah. talking to you now and talking to the people who I've talked to before on the show, it's very clear to me that like there is, there's overlap in experience for sure. Absolutely. Um, when you're a spoonie, you're a spoonie. Those experiences may be different, but there may be similarities within them. And I think it sounds like you're definitely going to address that. And I'm super excited. So it's a collection of essays. Yes. So yeah. it's, it's sort of like the idea is like um, having vagina problems and the way in which that impacts every part of your life. So there's mm-hmm. essays on friendship, essays on dating, essays on being in an actual relationship with someone, um, mm-hmm. and what that looks like when you have a chronic illness. Um, yeah. you know, essays about work, like just sort of like, I wanted to depict how this really does affect every fucking part of your life. Because I think yeah. a lot of times with my issues in particular, people are like, Oh, your periods hurt. And I'm like, yeah no, I wish, bitch. I wish that was the only thing. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah that and that's the thing. Goal. Yeah. And that's the thing with endometriosis in particular and with the comorbidities that you've discussed as well, like that it's not as simple as like basic pain. It's, it's constant pain. It's constant adjustments in your body and other systems of your body in order to cope with the pain. Mm-hmm. And endometriosis, you can't just have a laparoscopy and have the endometrium removed, I mean, they continue to grow back, particularly if you have adenomyosis and then they start fusing organs and things like that. Yes. It's the stuff that I have learned about endometriosis in the past six months and the way that it attacks your body. It Mm. creates its own blood supply. I mean, it's a fucking doozy and people really act like it's like stubbing your toe. I don't know why. I keep going back to that example for some reason. I think I stubbed my toe recently. (laughs) I keep talking about it. I'm like, where is this coming from? (laughs) I like it. Yeah. But but it really is like such a serious and debilitating progressive disease. And the earlier it's found in young people, the better. And the more informed they are to make decisions and to get diagnosed, the better. And I just like, I will never shut the fuck up about this until people understand how dangerous this is. It's a public yeah. health crisis. Yes. Up. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one in 10 women. Oh yeah. Who it's, have it. And that's like, that's, that's the, the people who've reported it. Too. Right. It's like, those are the diagnosed, mm-hmm. like it's sort of, it's just like, I mean, there's probably people today sitting there trying to like talk to their doctors as we speak, being like, I'm in so much pain. And the doctor is probably like, take ibuprofen. So it's, yeah. like, it's very much still a problem. Yeah. Or hand them the pill. That's what happened to me when I was younger. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah. You know? I mean, I was on the pill for like eight fucking years. Yeah. And that does a whole host of other things to your body. Oh, yeah. I'm not against birth control. I'm all like, go At fuck around and live your it. life. But we should also admit, be able to freely admit that it can be improved a lot. Well, and the fact that like your doctor never sits down with you when you're like, you know, 15, 16 years old and first being prescribed the pill to be like, here are the good things it does. And here are the bad things. Like there's never a discussion about that. You're expected as a teenager to read the the insert oh, yeah. in the pamphlet. I mean, and it's like, I, I, I didn't as read like that. a 28-year-old. No, yeah. I'm not going to read that shit. No one's reading that shit. <laughs> no one People is. who wrote it didn't read it, you no. know? Like, it's not real. And they also just hand it out like it's fucking candy. They're, yeah, like, they they're like, oh, do you have acne? Take birth control. Oh, yeah. do you have, does your back hurt? Take birth control. Did you stub your toe? <laughs> Take birth control. <laughs> like, it's just really, I'm yeah. Just, yeah. But yeah. I mean, no. yeah. It's interesting too. Pro. Yes. Pro, but it's, it's, it doesn't affect everyone the same way. And it didn't agree with my body. That's and, You're probably lucky that way. Cause you didn't have to like fuck around with it for too long. I, well, eight years. years. And then <laughs> too long. It's know, relative. I yeah. mean, yeah. A lot of people ask me this a lot on Instagram, why mm-hmm. I don't take birth control because they just sort of like it doesn't make sense to them because I yeah. get, it can help your period pain a lot. And I get that, but it fucked with me a lot. Mm. And as crazy as it may sound, like my period's definitely terrible, but birth control like made other things really, really terrible too. Yeah. It's sort of like, okay, which one am I going to deal with? Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to be on birth control anymore. So mm. I just, I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Good for you. I mean, it sounds like you're very much, you're so aware of, the side effects of these different things because you've again done your due diligence. It, like it takes time, but like you do learn these things from your community and as you speak out and reach out more about that kind of stuff. So totally. you know, if that's not an advertisement for being informed, I don't know what is. And yeah. it's interesting too because it's like I talk with my friends about how the male birth control pill was no. invented yeah. years and years ago and never went to market yeah. because there were too many side effects. So like. Like, like it's our responsibility as women, right? First of all, but then also like we have to deal with side effects. Some women have adverse health side effects. You obviously did when you had to stop taking the pill. So it's like, you know, there's two sides to every coin, right? My biggest thing with anything around that stuff is just like, whatever works for your body is what you should do. And I like would never judge someone else. Right. And I, Mm -hmm. I know you feel the same way, but I do feel like there's Oftentimes when we talk about the problems with stuff like that, like a lot of times people who do rely on that stuff can feel like ostracized. So I think like that's what's missing from the chronic illness community sometimes is like this idea that like if it works for me, it should work for everyone else with this illness. And like that's just simply not how it works. So Mm. I just always like to mention that because it makes me personally feel better too because I don't always fit in this box of like what has worked and helped other people. And then I sort of end up feeling like a failure. Yeah. Um, So, absolutely. So we've covered so much today and I like to wrap up my interviews with a couple of top three lists. Okay. And I was wondering if we could start with your top three tips for someone who like maybe suspects they've got something off, needs to go to the doctor and get stuff checked out, or maybe they've already been diagnosed and they're living with chronic invisible illness. What would you recommend to these people to manage their way through it? Let me think. Okay. Number one, try and get someone on your side. We talked about that earlier. And I think having 
friends who understand it now because I do have a lot of friends who have chronic illnesses now, but also just having a friend in general who will be there for you and attend doctor's appointments with you if need be and just advocate for you when you can't advocate for yourself. um, Mm -hmm. That would be one of them. Another one is to remember that doctors work for you. I love that that one. That's great. It's like, literally, if you're not doing your job, bitch, I will fire you. Okay. (laughs) I will find someone else. Again, I recognize it's a privilege, but if you have the opportunity, remember that your doctor works for you. It is not the other way around. And Um, I suppose that goes hand in hand with you're the boss of your body. Yes. You make the decisions. Yes. And I think that would maybe be in tied with my third one, which is just like, be on your own side and be kind Mm -hmm. to yourself because life with having a chronic illness is really tough sometimes. And it's way tougher when you don't have your own back. And when you are mean to yourself and think like, if only I had done yoga today, or if only I drank my juice or whatever, then maybe I wouldn't be feeling this way. Don't do that to yourself. And I know it's way harder to do like to put that into practice, but yeah. Be on your own side. I really love those. Um, And also, I mean, you mentioned a lot during the interview, you know, this is tied in with finding people who are on your side. It's like find your community also. So it's not just like your personal advocates that you can turn to when you need a friend to go to like a pre-op appointment with you. But it's also having that community that you can learn from and grow with, right? Yeah. It's having that community that you can go to and say, what's up? My vagina hurts today. And they're not going to be like weird about it. They're going to be like, Oh, like what kind of pain? Where? Yeah. What have you like, have you stuck your dilator in yet? Or like, what's the situation? You know? I love that. Um, okay. Last top three list. Okay. Top three things that give you unbridled joy that you are not willing to compromise on despite lifestyle changes that you may have made to manage your chronic illness. They could be like, comfort activities when you have a flare up, they could be guilty Mm -hmm. pleasures, um, secret indulgences, or they could just flat out be like shit you aren't going to not do because you love it. Yeah. This is hard because like some of this stuff is like tied in with what makes me feel really good with my chronic illness now. But either way, if I like suddenly woke up tomorrow and didn't have chronic pain anymore, like I would still get high (laughs) off my ass. I'm not giving up weed. I, it makes me so fucking happy. I love it. Food's better. TV is better. Everything's better with weed. So that's something I am not fucking giving up. My second thing, when the earth ceases to exist because of global warming, I will still be taking hot baths. And Mm. if it's my fault that the earth ceases to exist, then, you know, that's (laughs) something that I'm just going to have to live with because I love a good hot bath. I don't think it'll be your fault. Don't worry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm contributing a little bit, but it's okay. Um, We all contribute by existing. Like you can't, you're born and you are a contributor. (laughs) Yeah, no, for sure. My third thing is this giant almond marzipan croissant that I get (sighs) at this bakery down the street from me. What is it's, it called and where can we get one? <laughs> it's called Cafe Los Feliz. It's um, yeah. amazing. My favorite in the world. And it's like $4, maybe $5. It's giant. I'm talking mm. like giant. It's amazing. <laughs> and I'm like, it really like, you know, sugar sort of makes my inflammation worse. Gluten makes my inflammation worse. Mm. I'm not supposed to be having these things, but guess what, bitch? I don't care. I'm still going to eat that. It's the yeah. best. It's so fucking good. That's I'm great. Like, it's like a good treat. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. I'm like, oh, anytime the guy that I'm seeing 
comes to visit because he lives not here. Mm. We get like 10 of them and just keep <laughs> them here. And you we just, just lock the door, lock yourselves in and just gorge yourself. Yes. It's costumes. so good. It's the best thing. So yeah. I think probably also like to like add to your list, enhance your list. Yeah. Um, I think just based on like how I know you from social media, which is not at all, but you know, yeah. like, so, no, you know, you so. yeah. um, I think also like masturbation I was just gonna and say. sex yes. two things on that list too. Cause it's like, these are things that could potentially cause you pain, but you're they finding do. ways yeah. to, to give yourself pleasure and to make sure that you are getting something good out of your body. A hundred percent. You are absolutely correct. My ideal situation would be I'm high in a hot bath with my croissant masturbating. Oh Perfect yeah. Day. <laughs> Perfect day. That's all that I want. So good. <laughs> That's all I want out of life. And you know yeah. what? I can get it. Like this. Yeah. Week. So yeah. maybe I, I love will. that. Yeah. I love that. But yeah, you're so right. That is very important. Um, those things do cause me pain. And I'm like, you know what? I don't fucking care because I still want to orgasm. And yeah. I'm going to. And sometimes you just need it for a stress release or like just to remind just, yourself that your body can still oh my God. Yes. give you good things. My favorite thing to do is to just take like hot pictures and then masturbate to like, which is basically energy. like you're posting like hot pictures. And then, so guys, like every time Laura posts a hot picture of herself, she's masturbating immediately. I'm just afterwards. like so turned on by like this confidence that I never thought I would have. It sounds like yeah. so crazy, but it's like, I look back five years from now or five years ago and I'm like, oh my God, I never like. Laura never thought she would get here and bitch I'm here. So like, yeah, I'm going to celebrate it. I love it. I love the person that I've become. And I don't care if people think that that's conceited. I don't care because I just love myself. And And who you are and who you are is also who you are is not chronically ill. That's part of who you are. Yeah. And I've sort of just chosen to embrace it and like, you know, there are so many times when I wake up and I'm absolutely miserable and want nothing more than to be free of this. But there's also days when I wake up and say, you know what, what the fuck ever I have this thing, I'm just gonna be me and I'm not gonna let it like, make me feel self conscious or make me feel any less cool or like worth dating or worth being friends with like, I'm fucking great. And my chronic illness isn't changing that, you know? Yeah. Well, I second that motion. You are fucking great. You and are fucking great. <laughs> thank you. It has been such a pleasure to have you on the show today. And I'm really excited for everyone listening to get to know you a little better. Because guys, yeah. if you're not already following Laura, and please tell everyone listening where they can find you and your work. Yes. The easiest place is just to follow me on Instagram. It's at Laura E. Parker. It's not Laura. It's L-A-R-A. E P A R K E R. That is my name. Yeah. It's not Loray. Oftentimes people do think my name is Loray, which honestly, that's fine. You can call me. Yeah. That. That's actually not a bad name. I kind of yeah. like it. I mean, it's, like, it's pretty chill. I actually, yeah. I don't know any Lorays, you know, <laughs> nor do I, but it's a yeah. cool name. I like it. So yeah, if you want, just follow Loray Parker. <laughs> that's my new thing. <laughs> That's great. And then also like people can find your writing on BuzzFeed and your books coming yes. out October 6th. Yes. Please buy Vagina Problems October 6th, 2020. It's coming out from St. Martin's Press and mm. I hope that you like it. And if you don't, well, that's fine too, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Laura, it has been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show and happy new year. Thank you so much. Happy new year. <laughs> mm mm-hmm. 
that's it, folks. Thanks for listening. As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.